When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Law School of America The Equal Protection Clause is part of the first section of the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. The clause, which took effect in 1868, provides nor shall any state deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. It mandates that individuals in similar situations be treated equally by the law. A primary motivation for this clause was to validate the equality provisions contained in the Civil Rights Act of 1866 which guaranteed that all citizens would have the guaranteed right to equal protection by law. As a whole, the 14th Amendment marked a large shift in American constitutionalism, by applying substantially more constitutional restrictions against the states than had applied before the Civil War. The meaning of the Equal Protection Clause has been the subject of much debate, and inspired the well-known phrase equal justice under law. This clause was the basis for Brown v. Board of Education, 1954 the Supreme Court decision that helped to dismantle racial segregation, and also the basis for many other decisions rejecting discrimination against, and bigotry towards, people belonging to various groups. While the Equal Protection Clause itself applies only to state and local governments, the Supreme Court held in Bowling v. Sharp, 1954, that the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment nonetheless imposes various equal protection requirements on the federal government by reversing corporation. Text. The Equal Protection Clause is located at the end of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. All persons born or naturalized in the United States, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property, without due process of law nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Background. Though equality under the law is an American legal tradition arguably dating to the Declaration of Independence, formal equality for many groups remained elusive. Before passage of the Reconstruction Amendments, which included the Equal Protection Clause, American law did not extend constitutional rights to black Americans. Black people were considered inferior to white Americans, and subject to chattel slavery in the slave states until the Emancipation Proclamation and the ratification of the 13th Amendment. Even black Americans that were not enslaved lacked many crucial legal protections. In the 1857 Dred Scott v. Sandford decision, the Supreme Court rejected abolitionism and determined black men, whether free or in bondage, had no legal rights under the U.S. Constitution at the time. Currently, a plurality of historians believe that this judicial decision set the United States on the path to the Civil War, which led to the ratifications of the Reconstruction Amendments. Before and during the Civil War, the Southern states prohibited speech of pro-Union citizens, anti-slavery advocates, and Northerners in general, since the Bill of Rights did not apply to the states during such times. During the Civil War, many of the Southern states stripped the state's citizenship of many whites and banished them from their state effectively seizing their property. Shortly after the Union victory in the American Civil War, the 13th Amendment was proposed by Congress and ratified by the states in 1865, abolishing slavery. Subsequently, many ex-Confederate states then adopted black codes following the war, 
with these laws severely restricting the rights of blacks to hold property, including real property, such as real estate, and many forms of personal property, and to form legally enforceable contracts. Such codes also established harsher criminal consequences for blacks than for whites. Because of the inequality imposed by black codes, a Republican-controlled Congress enacted the Civil Rights Act of 1866. The act provided that all persons born in the United States were citizens, contrary to the Supreme Court's 1857 decision in Dred Scott v. Sandford, and required that citizens of every race and color, full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings for the security of person and property, as is enjoyed by white citizens. President Andrew Johnson vetoed the Civil Rights Act of 1866 amid concerns, among other things, that Congress did not have the constitutional authority to enact such a bill. Such doubts were one factor that led Congress to begin to draft and debate what would become the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Additionally, Congress wanted to protect white Unionists who were under personal and legal attack in the former Confederacy. The effort was led by the radical Republicans of both houses of Congress, including John Bingham, Charles Sumner, and Thaddeus Stevens. It was the most influential of these men, John Bingham, who was the principal author and drafter of the Equal Protection Clause. The southern states were opposed to the Civil Rights Act, but in 1865 Congress, exercising its power under Article I, Section 5, Clause 1 of the Constitution, to be the judge of the qualifications of its own members, had excluded Southerners from Congress, declaring that their states, having rebelled against the Union, could therefore not elect members to Congress. It was this fact, the fact that the 14th Amendment was enacted by a rump Congress, that permitted the passage of the 14th Amendment by Congress and subsequently proposed to the states. The ratification of the amendment by the former Confederate states was imposed as a condition of their acceptance back into the Union. Ratification. With a return to originalist interpretations of the Constitution, many wonder what was intended by the framers of the Reconstruction Amendments at the time of their ratification. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery but to what extent it protected other rights was unclear. After the 13th Amendment the South began to institute black codes which were restrictive laws seeking to keep black Americans in a position of inferiority. The 14th Amendment was ratified by nervous Republicans in response to the rise of black codes. This ratification was irregular in many ways. First there were multiple states that rejected the 14th Amendment, but when their new governments were created due to Reconstruction, these new governments accepted the amendment. There were also two states, Ohio and New Jersey that accepted the amendment and then later passed resolutions rescinding that acceptance. The nullification of the two states' acceptance was considered illegitimate and both Ohio and New Jersey were included in those counted as ratifying the amendment. Many historians have argued that the 14th Amendment was not originally intended to grant sweeping political and social rights to the citizens but instead to solidify the constitutionality of the 1866 Civil Rights Act. While it is widely agreed that this was a key reason for the ratification of the 14th Amendment, many historians adopt a much wider view. It is a popular interpretation that the 14th Amendment was always meant to ensure equal rights for all those in the United States. This argument was used by Charles Sumner when he used the 14th Amendment as the basis for his arguments to expand the protections afforded to black Americans. Though the Equal Protection Clause is one of the most cited ideas in legal theory, it received little attention during the ratification of the 14th Amendment. Instead the key tenet of the 14th Amendment at the time of its ratification was the Privileges or Immunities Clause. This clause sought to protect the privileges and immunities of all citizens which now included black men. 
The scope of this clause was substantially narrowed following the slaughterhouse cases in which it was determined that a citizen's privileges and immunities were only ensured at the federal level and that it was government overreach to impose this standard on the states. Even in this halting decision the court still acknowledged the context in which the amendment was passed, stating that knowing the evils and injustice the 14th Amendment was meant to combat is key in our legal understanding of its implications and purpose. With the abridgment of the Privileges or Immunities Clause, legal arguments aimed at protecting black Americans' rights became more complex and that is when the Equal Protection Clause started to gain attention for the arguments it could enhance. During the debate in Congress, more than one version of the clause was considered. Here is the first version, the Congress shall have power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper to secure, to all persons in the several states equal protection in the rights of life, liberty, and property. Bingham said about this version, it confers upon Congress power to see to it that the protection given by the laws of the states shall be equal in respect to life and liberty and property to all persons. The main opponent of the first version was Congressman Robert S. Hale of New York, despite Bingham's public assurances that under no possible interpretation can it ever be made to operate in the state of New York while she occupies her present proud position. Hale ended up voting for the final version, however. When Senator Jacob Howard introduced that final version, he said, It prohibits the hanging of a black man for a crime for which the white man is not to be hanged. It protects the black man in his fundamental rights as a citizen with the same shield which it throws over the white man. Ought not the time to be now passed when one measure of justice is to be meted out to a member of one caste while another in a different measure is meted out to the member of another caste, both castes being alike citizens of the United States, both bound to obey the same laws to sustain the burdens of the same government, and both equally responsible to justice and to God for the deeds done in the body? The 39th United States Congress proposed the 14th Amendment on June 13, 1866. A difference between the initial and final versions of the clause was that the final version spoke not just of equal protection but of the equal protection of the laws. John Bingham said in January 1867, no state may deny to any person the equal protection of the laws, including all the limitations for personal protection of every article and section of the Constitution. By July 9, 1868, three-fourths of the states, 28 of 37, ratified the amendment, and that is when the Equal Protection Clause became law. Now a word from our sponsor, the Law School of America. Early History Following Ratification Bingham said in a speech on March 31, 1871 that the clause meant no state could deny to anyone the equal protection of the Constitution of the United States, any of the rights which it guarantees to all men, nor deny to anyone any right secured to him either by the laws and treaties of the United States or of such state. At that time, the meaning of equality varied from one state to another if the original 13 states never passed any laws barring interracial marriage, and the other states were divided on the issue in the Reconstruction era. In 1872, the Alabama Supreme Court ruled that the state's ban on mixed-race marriage violated the cardinal principle of the 1866 Civil Rights Act and of the Equal Protection Clause. Almost a hundred years would pass before the U.S. Supreme Court followed that Alabama case, Burns v. State, in the case of Loving v. Virginia. In Burns, the Alabama Supreme Court said, Marriage is a civil contract, and in that character alone is dealt with by the municipal law. The same right to make a contract as is enjoyed by white citizens, means the right to make any contract which a white citizen may make. The law intended to destroy the distinctions of race and color in respect to the rights secured by it. As for public schooling, no states during this era of Reconstruction actually required separate schools for blacks. However, some states, for example, 
New York, gave local districts discretion to set up schools that were deemed separate but equal. In contrast, Iowa and Massachusetts flatly prohibited segregated schools ever since the 1850s. Likewise, some states were more favorable to women's legal status than others. New York, for example, had been giving women full property, parental, and widow's rights since 1860, but not the right to vote. No state or territory allowed women's suffrage when the Equal Protection Clause took effect in 1868. In contrast, at that time African American men had full voting rights in five states. Gilded Age Interpretation and the Plessy Decision. In the United States, the year 1877 marked the end of Reconstruction and the start of the Gilded Age. The first truly landmark equal protection decision by the Supreme Court was Strada v. West Virginia, 1880. A black man convicted of murder by an all-white jury challenged a West Virginia statute excluding blacks from serving on juries. Exclusion of blacks from juries, the court concluded, was a denial of equal protection to black defendants, since the jury had been drawn from a panel from which the state has expressly excluded every man of race. At the same time, the court explicitly allowed sexism and other types of discrimination, saying that states may confine the selection to males, to freeholders, to citizens, to persons within certain ages, or to persons having educational qualifications. We do not believe the 14th Amendment was ever intended to prohibit this, its aim was against discrimination because of race or color. The next important post-war case was the Civil Rights Cases, 1883 in which the constitutionality of the Civil Rights Act of 1875 was at issue. The act provided that all persons should have full and equal enjoyment of inns, public conveyances on land or water, theaters, and other places of public amusement. In its opinion, the court explicated what has since become known as the State Action Doctrine, according to which the guarantees of the Equal Protection Clause apply only to acts done or otherwise sanctioned in some way by the state. Prohibiting blacks from attending plays or staying in inns was simply a private wrong. Justice John Marshall Harlan dissented alone, saying, I cannot resist the conclusion that the substance and spirit of the recent amendments of the Constitution have been sacrificed by a subtle and ingenious verbal criticism. Harlan went on to argue that because, one, public conveyances on land and water use the public highways, and, two, innkeepers engage in what is a quasi-public employment, and, three, Places of public amusement are licensed under the laws of the states, excluding blacks from using these services was an act sanctioned by the state. A few years later, Justice Stanley Matthews wrote the court's opinion in Yeko v. Hopkins, 1886. In it the word person from the 14th Amendment section has been given the broadest possible meaning by the U.S. Supreme Court. These provisions are universal in their application to all persons within the territorial jurisdiction, without regard to any differences of race of color, or of nationality, and the equal protection of the laws is a pledge of the protection of equal laws. Thus, the clause would not be limited to discrimination against African Americans, but would extend to other races, colors, and nationalities such as, in this case, legal aliens in the United States who are Chinese citizens. In its most contentious Gilded Age interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause, Plessy v. Ferguson, 1896, the Supreme Court upheld a Louisiana Jim Crow law that required the segregation of blacks and whites on railroads and mandated separate railway cars for members of the two races. The court, speaking through Justice Henry B. Brown, ruled that the Equal Protection Clause had been intended to defend equality in civil rights, not equality in social arrangements. All that was therefore required of the law was reasonableness, and Louisiana's railway law amply met that requirement.
being based on the established usages, customs and traditions of the people. Just as Harlan again descended. Everyone knows, he wrote. That the statute in question had its origin in the purpose, not so much to exclude white persons from railroad cars occupied by blacks, as to exclude colored people from coaches occupied by or assigned to white persons, in view of the Constitution, in the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior, dominant, ruling class of citizens. There is no caste here. Our Constitution is colorblind, and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. Such arbitrary separation by race, Harlan concluded, was a badge of servitude wholly inconsistent with the civil freedom and the equality before the law established by the Constitution. Harlan's philosophy of constitutional colorblindness would eventually become more widely accepted, especially after World War II. It was also in the Gilded Age that a ruling by the Supreme Court included headnotes written by John C. Bancroft, a former railway company president. Bancroft, acting as court reporter, indicated in the headnotes that corporations were persons, while the actual court decision itself avoided specific statements regarding the equal protection clauses applied to corporations. However, the legal concept of corporate personhood predates the 14th Amendment. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the clause was used to strike down numerous statutes applying to corporations. Since the New Deal, however, such invalidations have been rare. Between Plessy and Brown. In Missouri X. Rel. Gaines v. Canada, 1938, Lloyd Gaines was a black student at Lincoln University of Missouri, one of the historically black colleges in Missouri. He applied for admission to the law school at the all-white University of Missouri, since Lincoln did not have a law school, but was denied admission due solely to his race. The Supreme Court, applying the separate but equal principle of Plessy, held that a state offering a legal education to whites but not to blacks violated the Equal Protection Clause. In Shelley v. Kramer, 1948, the court showed increased willingness to find racial discrimination illegal. The Shelley case concerned a privately made contract that prohibited people of the Negro or Mongolian race from living on a particular piece of land. Seeming to go against the spirit, if not the exact letter, of the civil rights cases, the court found that, although a discriminatory private contract could not violate the Equal Protection Clause, the court's enforcement of such a contract could, after all, the Supreme Court reasoned, courts were part of the state. The companion cases Sweet v. Painter and McLaurin v. Oklahoma State Regents, both decided in 1950, paved the way for a series of school integration cases. In McLaurin, the University of Oklahoma had admitted McLaurin, an African-American, but had restricted his activities there. He had to sit apart from the rest of the students in the classrooms and library, and could eat in the cafeteria only at a designated table. A unanimous court, through Chief Justice Fred M. Vinson, said that Oklahoma had deprived McLaurin of the equal protection of the laws. There is a vast difference, a constitutional difference, between restrictions imposed by the state which prohibit the intellectual commingling of students, and the refusal of individuals to commingle where the state presents no such bar. The present situation, Vinson said, was the former. In sweet, the court considered the constitutionality of Texas's state system of law schools, which educated blacks and whites at separate institutions. The court, again through Chief Justice Vinson, and again with no dissenters, invalidated the school system, not because it separated students, but rather because the separate facilities were not equal. They lacked substantial equality in the educational opportunities offered to their students. All of these cases, as well as the upcoming Brown case, were litigated by the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. 
It was Charles Hamilton Houston, a Harvard Law School graduate and law professor at Howard University, who in the 1930s first began to challenge racial discrimination in the federal courts. Thurgood Marshall, a former student of Houston's and the future Solicitor General and Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, joined him. Both men were extraordinarily skilled appellate advocates, but part of their shrewdness lay in their careful choice of which cases to litigate, selecting the best legal proving grounds for their cause. The Law School of America The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America